Welcome to The Offseason. I'm your host, Dr. Cox. The Offseason is an exploration of athletic health, recovery, and performance told through stories of athletes and their medical and training team. Now for a quick but mandatory medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of naturopathic medicine or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. No patient-doctor relationship is formed. Use of this material is at user's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any conditions they may have and should seek assistance from their trusted healthcare professional for any condition. This podcast does not speak on behalf of naturopathic medicine and does not represent the views of the profession as a whole. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Off Season. Today I have on Brittany Klingman. So Brittany is a pelvic floor physiotherapist and I selfishly had her on here because I wanted to rack her brain. So she uh, really highlights her education here on training during pregnancy and postpartum. Um, And these are questions that I really wanted to know. I was super curious when I go through the research, I don't find a lot of great answers or I find a lot of mixed and confusing answers. So we talk about training during all the trimesters, things to watch out for. We talk about training postpartum, um, healing time, how long it takes your body to get back in the game. We talk a little bit about Brittany's own story, but we're definitely going to get into that in another episode um, where we talk all things C-section. So I hope new moms out there, anyone planning to get pregnant, um, even partners, there's just so much great information in here that I think is really applicable and you can kind of tangibly take it and use it. Whereas a lot of the general information I find very difficult to pull, you know, actionable steps out of. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. Hey, Brittany, welcome to the off-season. Hi, thanks Thanks. for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. This is a prime time for me, and um, yeah, I'm excited to have you on here. I have probably so many burning questions that hopefully I'm not the only one that has them, and we can kind of break down a little bit of information for people today. Fantastic. I look forward to it. Wicked. Why don't you tell everyone what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a physiotherapist, so I'm an orthopedic and pelvic health physio here in Halifax. I work at Young Kemp Physiotherapy. I've been at this now, I guess, about 12 years doing the private practice orthopedics and uh, probably closer to nine years um, doing the pelvic health thing. Uh, I'm also a mom of two. Uh, I've had two C-sections um, with both children, and I am a recreational CrossFitter and weightlifter in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a what spare time, right? Yeah, I fit it in as a priority for me, but that's that's the way my um, my mind works. Definitely, that's awesome. Yeah, I feel like it took me way too long to figure out pelvic floor physiotherapy and that it was such an amazing option for so many of my patients um I don't know why like I feel like a lot of programs don't mention it a lot is that your experience as well absolutely um you know even myself having been in the world of pelvic health uh, a little bit prior to my children um I realized following my pregnancies that there's a huge gap um and lack I'm going to say lack of support mm-hmm. for particularly with moms navigating return to fitness postpartum. And I think it was my own journey and I'm still on it, but my own journey through that process that kind of has fueled my passion um, because I'm a little bit of a devil. Like I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. Mm-hmm. So in my experience, if um, there are certain narratives or understanding about things that may increased risk of certain pelvic floor, pelvic 
um, floor conditions, uh, particularly in females with lifting heavy weights. And I, I didn't want to kind of fall by that narrative. So uh, I'm challenging it. That's amazing. Thank you for challenging that because that's exactly where I find myself right now. And it's um, as a first time pregnant woman in my experience, uh, it's amazing. Like I've studied the science, I've studied the physiology, like I know the background of what's happening. But when it comes to me and my own body and being out on the floor lifting things, there's this fear that sets in, right? There's like, am I doing harm? Am I hurting things? Am I doing anything that could put anything in jeopardy, right? And sometimes your medical mind that I have goes right out the window. Like if you were sitting in front of me, I'd be like, well, do what your body can do and and don't go crazy with things. But if you were to give like general recommendations for lifting while pregnant, what, yeah. what does that look like? Um, so the recommendations may vary a little bit depending on the like trimester. Mm -hmm. Okay. So why don't we break it down by trimester? And then if there's more specific questions that you have, we can kind of dive deep into it. Um, so first trimester, as you've just been through, it's over. <laughs> my, <laughs> my general comment is like the fatigue is real mm -hmm. in that first trimester. And often depending on obviously individuals not having any absolute contraindications to exercise, that fatigue or morning sickness or daytime sickness, really, if athletes stay in tune with a general question of should I versus could I, mm -hmm. um, that they find the answer within, within that question. Um, it is, it's safe to continue to do anything in that first trimester, really with the exception of contact sports. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you allow that fatigue to kind of navigate you, like, how am I feeling today? Is this really a time where I should be pushing the limits or is this a kind of fatigue that I would be better off to take some, some R and R mm -hmm. that kind of is the general, um, recommendation in first trimester. Yeah. That's super helpful too. And I think like the contact sport piece is huge. I think um, when I first found out I had signed up for a soccer league and I was like, I'm going to soccer. And my husband was like, what? You can't go to soccer. And I was just like, well, okay. And then you read on the website, like it's, it's kind of scary, but even that general recommendation and even for snowboarding, like I got my gear out and I was ready to go. And my husband like knows that I'm not the best snowboarder, but just enjoy it. And he's just like, what is the risk there? Like, why are you playing this game with um, the potential of something happening there? What are your thoughts there? Well, I think, again, that is going to be very individual. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, depending on the person and their previous experience with that activity, mm -hmm. um, the, the inherent risk, like they're, they're kind of making that choice knowing um, risk and benefit. Like obviously for you with your podcast, like I wouldn't recommend someone in um, like MMA and, and that type of contact to continue. Yeah. Um, but however, if it's in BC, when I practiced out West, um, I worked with a very dense population of mountain bikers mm -hmm. who as a general rule, don't fall off their bikes. I mean, there's still the, the chance that that could happen. Right. Um, and they kind of navigated that information and made the decision that felt right for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's just, yeah, providing an, an opportunity, a resource for women to understand kind of that risk reward and then letting, empowering them to make a decision that feels good to them. Definitely. Yeah, that is so huge. And I think... Um, 
One of the other things too is that athlete mindset. So I've been bred bigger, stronger, <laughs> faster. Like, and I I try to break the habit with every patient that I have and every athlete that I have. That even doing nothing is doing something. Sometimes, you know. And um, I think like even out there, I can still feel myself go like, well, you can do one more, or you can put a little bit more weight on, or you like you're not going to do any harm on that sense. And do you have some general thoughts around that, or what you suggest for people? Yeah, certainly. So depending on the demographic, mm-hmm. so if we think. Uh, recent guidelines have been released in 2019 as far as physical activity and in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what studies have shown is that only between, um, I think it's 18 to 40% are even falling within the current guidelines. And 60% are, are, are inactive, not falling within the guidelines at all. Mm-hmm. So those guidelines are... 150 minutes of moderate physical activity accumulated over the course of a week and over at least three days and mixed of um, mixed modalities. So whether that's aerobic and some strength training incorporated in that. When I think about that, like 150 minutes is a lot of physical activity. Mm -hmm. So it would be easy not to fall within that category. Um, So I think as a general rule, with the exception of the elite athletes, we're actually trying to encourage people to feel comfortable with moving more. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the previous narrative that only if you didn't do something prior to pregnancy, don't start something new, that does no longer holds true. Um, obviously, you're needing to check with your healthcare provider and know that you don't have any contraindications to exercise or starting a new activity. But in general, there, there are more benefits of even starting a, a fitness routine um, when you find out that you're expecting. Yeah. Um, so that that's be where I would go there. Mm-hmm. Now I've lost my train of thought on your original question. That literally answers it. It's kind of okay. like that thought process of probably more pushing to the that athlete mindset can mm-hmm. be detrimental, but it's right. good that you're doing things, I would say. Hey. Right, yeah. So so that maybe t- spoke to the, the it kind of, I find that women generally break into like two categories. Mm-hmm. The ones we're trying to encourage to move more and to empower them to feel safe in their movement and trust their bodies and, and kind of learn to move with their, their growing and changing body. And then you have the athlete brain that unfortunately we have to help them understand that the musculoskeletal changes that they're going to undergo through pregnancy is going to increasingly place them at a, at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Like it's normal to gradually decondition through pregnancy and that needs to be an expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for them really laying a, the groundwork of what realistic expectations are, because then it's easier for them to navigate that process. And I think help them understand that you don't have to enjoy every single moment of pregnancy either. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to feel frustrated that you're not you know, things look different for a little while. Definitely. So, yeah, I think the approach is just slightly different on the uh, either end of the the spectrum. But yeah. ex- setting ac- realistic expectations, I think, is the most important piece. Yeah, I would say, too, and it's it seems so even comforting to hear you say that now or listen to what you're saying because... Yeah, for whatever reason, sometimes that athlete mind takes over and it's just like, well, those rules don't apply to me or I can keep going because X, Y, and Z, whatever reason I can come up with that day, you know? Of course, yeah. I had one experience um, that was super interesting and probably like a pure coincidence that had happened, but I trained quite heavy and I um, started bleeding a lot, not a lot that night, but enough where I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't good. And this was probably like eight or nine weeks in, I think. Okay. 
and yeah, it just kind of set me back for a second, obviously evoked fear, obviously like put me down this path of like, oh good, you put too much weight on and you screwed everything up for yourself basically. Um, but again, like just to have the knowledge and had the education that, you know, it, it is normal to bleed in the first trimester, you know, throughout pregnancy, it's, it's normal. Mm-hmm. And it's usually kind of an amount that we're looking for, for any sort of negative outcome. You know what I mean? But just hearing that from other practitioners or hearing that from a different voice that is quite knowledgeable was super helpful to be like, okay, it's probably fine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't change all those feelings that you're going to go through mm-hmm. like in that moment. Yeah. Absolutely. And how much you beat yourself up over it. And you're like, oh, why did you do that? You know? For sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you hear stories like that quite often. Hey. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, yeah, it's just kind of meeting someone where they're at and then helping them understand what their choices are. Mm-hmm. And, and I think really with the athlete demographic in particular is helping them understand that there's a number of modifications that can be made mm-hmm. that still looks very similar to the thing that they were doing. And that's maybe like we can go down that road as far as, um, general recommendations around how, how we might alter training in the second trimester and the third trimester, depending on what type of activities that um, women are trying to continue to pursue. Definitely. Let's break that down. What, what like are general recommendations in that second trimester? So second trimester, obviously, as far as if we think about sleep, so in second trimester, generally, they recommend that we stop sleeping on our back mm-hmm. um, for the, the the weight of the uterus on the inferior vena cava and uh, impairing that venous return. Um, I think people naturally translate that information into, well, then I can't exercise on my back. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily hold true if an individual is asymptomatic during the exercise that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if it is coming to a point that the woman just maybe not feel, feeling comfortable on her back for, say, a traditional bench press, then we go to an incline variation. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the second trimester, or generally throughout, what I recommend is always exhale on exertion. So breathing through movement. And if it's a barbell athlete, breaking that <laughs> that very strong motor pattern yep. of of the Valsalva and, and bracing to, to do their lifts. Definitely. Let's break that down a little bit more. Cause I think that's, um, a huge piece of this. So, sure. um, yeah, anytime I lift, it's always like the brace, make sure you have every, all the air in and controlled mm-hmm. and through that movement. So what, what does that pattern? I know it's difficult through just speaking it through, <laughs> yeah, but I do your try. best to try to explain it. Yeah, sure. So, um, if we're talking about like the Valsalva, mm-hmm. what it would be uh, traditionally coached as like fill your lungs with air and then cr- close your throat to basically increase intra-abdominal pressure, which will translate to increased spinal stability, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we don't want is that closure, closure of the glottis, essentially. So we can then um, help our deep, canister, which is comprised of our diaphragm at the top, our pelvic floor muscles at the bottom, transverse abdominis, kind of our deep, deepest belly muscle uh, around the circumference, and then deep spinal muscles at our back. We can, through exhaling, through the hard part of the movement, so if it's a deadlift, let's use as an example, pulling from the floor, um, or if it's a press, um, the action of pressing overhead. Mm -hmm. If we exhale, like we're trying to pretend we're blowing through a straw, (sighs) 
we can still help our abdominals create spinal stiffness, however, manage pressure with without having that transient breath hold or the valsalva. Okay. And that would definitely probably change the amount of weight that you could put on the bar based on that, would you say? Yes, yeah. I would say so. So if we, what we generally know um, in a like training state is around 75 to 85% of a one RM lift, mm-hmm. we need to use a valsalva for that stability. So in theory, we should be able to use less than that percentage um, and breathe through the movement. So if, if you're, you know, know your numbers mm-hmm. with, with regards to percentages, you can use that as a guide. But then also knowing like, where am I in my pregnancy? If we think of that gradual deconditioning concept, the load is going to gradually reduce as you're farther along in your pregnancy as well. Mm-hmm. Do they have any general recommendations in terms of like percentages or is it extremely individual on that front? I would say at the moment, although the pendulum is very much swung, um, it's still really quite unknown. There's Mm -hmm. a lot we don't know as far as percentages, because I think what it comes to is, is like everyone's like relative, where do we start? What is their pregnancy going like? Um, Lots of different considerations there. Definitely. You know, in the social media world, a couple that I can think of at the moment, Annie Thor's daughter, recent, you know, CrossFitter who'd gone through pregnancy, who had trained very high intensities Mm -hmm. all the way through and did it, you know. Fine. (laughs) Fine. Um, Meg Scallon, she is an American um, super total athlete, was pregnant with twins. Wow. And trained um, quite intensely, um, quite far along in her pregnancy as well. So mm-hmm. they're kind of at the one end of the, the pendulum has swung the other way. And I feel like we should probably just offer recommendations that fall somewhere in the middle for people. Sure. Anything else in that second trimester that we're trying to be mindful of or that we should look out for? Well, I would say once you hit like that 16 to 18 week mark, mm-hmm. when the baby bump starts to present itself, um, Generally speaking, most people, like if, if you're in a CrossFit class, for example, would will move away from burpees. They just don't like that feeling of the contact of the baby bump on the floor. Yeah. Um, so we might be elev- like doing just a top half of a burpee or going to hands elevated uh, for a burpee. Um, that would be, and then depending on the, the, the quality of the athlete, when we're thinking about uh, like Olympic lifts, the, about the 16 week mark, um, that baby bump might start impacting the bar path with the snatch. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit later in, in the second trimex, trimester, like around 20, 23 weeks for the clean, because we receive it, the clean makes contact on the thigh a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on the athlete, that might be something that I'd recommend taking away um, or changing the movement so that we're not we're not starting to work around the bump and changing someone's motor pattern yeah. that you're then retraining postpartum. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of options that we can kind of work either end of that position mm-hmm. um, depending on on the individual. So uh, that, that holds true too for like a altering squat stance or deadlift position as the baby bump grows, just depending on the individual's um, conditioning and their comfort. And how that feels for them. That's right. I think the biggest thing is like starting to be aware of symptoms to watch for Mm -hmm. when something isn't maybe 
going how it should be going. Sure. Yeah. And you probably see this on a daily basis, but what are some of those symptoms that you see or like what are things people should be watching out for? Generally speaking, like I would say any back, like any pain, mm-hmm. really, orthopedic pain. So <laughs> back pain, pelvic girdle pain. So whether that's at the back, like at the SI joints or at the pubic symphysis in the front, any hip pain. I would also say watching for like any leaking of mm-hmm. urine or gas sensations or feeling the pelvic heaviness or pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as the baby bump grows, also watching for signs of diastasis, recti. So noticing uh, if, if you're starting to notice any coning or doming at the um, abdominal wall, mm-hmm. that would be a sign that you're not managing the pressure system quite well and it's kind of leaking out the front. So it, we'd, we'd maybe alter whatever activity that they're doing um, to potentially avoid having that happen. Okay. Yeah. And then into the third trimester, what do you notice there? What are we, what are we looking for there? Again, as a general rule, you're kind of scaling or modifying, reducing load, um, reducing range of motion. So maybe your squats no longer, you trust the bottom position. So maybe it's like a squat two box kind of thing where Mm -hmm. there's something behind you that you can trust. Um, and yeah, so the going for sure third trimester would be looking like sumo deadlifts if those feel good. Again, sometimes that um, wide stance doesn't feel great on people for their pelvis. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with single leg. So somewhere in the second and third trimester, usually higher impact variations of exercises, usually not tolerated or, or just feeling comfortable anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like box jumps um, might turn into step ups and then the step just gradually gets lower mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as it goes along. And, and I think in third trimester, it does very much become self-limiting mm-hmm. in that at that point, the uterus has usually altered the position of the diaphragm and you know, women are not even feeling like they're able to get that full breath. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes more symptom limited of, of feeling short of breath or just feeling gassed. And so the overall intensity or volume of the exercise is gradually reducing. Okay. And is there any timelines in that third trimester? Like if you're very close to your due date, do we just keep going status quo? If that, again, cleared by your primary health care provider, mm-hmm. as long as there are no contraindications. Mm-hmm. So if you have if you've been identified as having placenta previa, for example, their exercise is contraindicated after 28 weeks. Okay. So, again, that would be kind of a conversation with your primary health care provider. But if you're feeling good. You go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Nice. I would say like the, the women that I work with as far as um, preparing for birth is also another thing that I, I think women don't really even know. Nope. <laughs> it's an a, adventure. Is is a, a resource, yeah. right? So I do a lot of birth prep with expectant moms as well. Mm-hmm. That might start around 34 weeks. And I would say that there we're actually starting to have the conversation of really getting to know your body, what it feels like to connect with or relax the pelvic floor Mm -hmm. and learning to progressively build on that relaxation piece. So there are tools that are supported in literature, uh, techniques like perineal massage that can help reduce incidence of tearing. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of kind of mindfulness, breath work and focusing more on rather than like the Kegels thinking I need to be strong to, to prepare for this 
delivery and, mm-hmm. and labor um, is to learning how to let go and, and even in, encounter sensations of mild discomfort and learning how to meet that with relaxation because as it's the uterus that contracts in labor uh, and our pelvic floor needs to be able to meet any sort of maybe discomfort with being able to relax. That's so fascinating. And I think it's like things I'm putting out of my mind for right now. Fair enough. But I think like it's so important to know these things and anything that's going to be helpful for reducing tearing, reducing pain, reducing, you know, recovery and all that sort of stuff. So um, when we think about that birth prep and like perennial massage and all this sort of um, things that you can do to support the system, Mm -hmm. I know you are a pelvic floor physio, but do you highly recommend that every woman seeks out pelvic floor support? Uh, obviously I'm an advocate for it yes Um, however if we think back generations ago women I think were very in tune with their body and Mm -hmm. knew kind of what what we needed whether it was craving movement whether it was craving a change in position Mm -hmm. whatever that may be and so I think my approach is everyone's individual Mm -hmm. however if that's pelvic floor support that they're feeling like they need but it's actually just helping women stay in tune with their body Mm -hmm. because I think in today's society that's something we we very much have disconnected from Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you see that with the clients you work with all of the time yeah Yeah. so addressing conversations around fear um discussing what various options are Mm -hmm. um helping them understand like you know, maybe have a plan, but don't have a plan. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to one of my coworkers about that today. And, you know, you're again, probably that silly athlete headspace of like, I don't want drugs. I don't want an epidural. I just want to do this naturally to see, but also like you get in there and shit hits the fan sometimes. Right. Yeah. I, I think a lot is out of your control mm-hmm. in a way in that, in that moment of, um, the, the latent and active, um, stages of birth. Mm-hmm. And so I think having more of a roadmap concept. I like that, yeah. Becoming informed before of your options. Obviously, you know, like route A is the desired route. However, being very well prepared for, however, if it starts to steer me this way, well, route B is okay Mm -hmm. or route C is okay. Um, Because I I think helping moms navigate that is really important as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I struggled significantly with postpartum anxiety after my first. And I didn't actually even recognize that it was that until probably a couple of years ago. And there's, again, it's just a conversation that there's a lot of stigma around or maybe lack of conversation around Mm -hmm. and to helping, helping women understand that a C-section isn't a failed birth experience mm-hmm. for example like yeah. in in my particular circumstance of course. i think i felt like a failure <laughs> and helping you know moms understand that there are various reasons why it may turn into a c-section for example mm-hmm. and that this is like a real birth experience for you and offering them support of how to navigate that appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's absolutely massive and and thank you for sharing that cuz that's that's huge right that that sensation of somehow because it didn't go some sort of way that it was a failure right like that's huge right yeah and it's it's something that I've had to unpack mm-hmm. <laughs> in little bits over years mm-hmm. um as well and I know it's not easy like to again come back to that athlete brain we want things to happen a certain way mm-hmm. um 
but the more you can kind of prepare yourself to be flexible Mm -hmm. in that, I think the easier it will become to kind of roll with the roll with the circumstances. Yeah. And I feel like I didn't think too much about it until I'm in this situation now or it's coming down the line and and even patients experiencing who were pregnant or who are trying to get pregnant. A lot of it I didn't I didn't take personally. So now I get to take it personally or I get Mm -hmm. to really like unpack some of these thoughts. And I think um, when I watch television shows or when I see birth on television, it seems like this crazy experience. They often navigate the male as like being not that helpful or um, faint or out of sorts or something. And then you see the woman in the stirrup position. That's pretty classic, right? And the more I've been reading or the more I've been learning, like, is this the best position for birth? Right. Maybe for some, maybe not for others. What's your thoughts? Yeah, great question. Um, so I do believe the supine position does it, it predisposes women to increase risk of tearing. Mm-hmm. Reason being, unfortunately, like I feel like I'm going to hand talk here, wishing that I had a, you know, someone could see the pelvis in front of me. Mm-hmm. But if you at home Google a pelvis, really when during birth, the sacrum kind of opens like envision it opening like a hatchback. So it, it has some movement movement to move out of the way to allow baby to descend through uh, the birth canal. When we're lying on our back, we don't, we don't first allow that movement to happen. Mm-hmm. It's kind of blocked by our body weight and compression. And then baby and, and gravity is also pulling back on the pelvic floor. So other positions that are options are like sideline, maybe that top, top leg up on a peanut ball or supported by your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, that way the, the sacrum is allowed to move or more flexible. Same thing in four point or in a squat position mm-hmm. um, are variations where the sacrum can have like more ability to move. For sure. Do you know why it's kind of standard procedure to keep somebody in that position? At the hospital or am I just naive and just watch too much TV? I think it's changing. Okay. Yeah. I think it's changing depending on, you know, how you enter. If you have something like a doula for support to kind of advocate what your desires are through Mm -hmm. that process, I think can be tremendously helpful. Um, And I think it's in part um, poor marketing. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) That's what we see. That's what we assume Mm -hmm. is going to happen. Um, I don't think that's the reality that's kind of played out. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I think sometimes when people are super gassed, it is like the most stable position um, and requires the least amount of kind of energy Mm -hmm. at that point in time. For sure. What about, um, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this question, so no worries if you want to pass on it. But um, for that male piece of things, yeah, Mm -hmm. like I don't love, or male or female, whoever your partner, whoever you have in there with you, um, the the vision of like uselessness is kind of portrayed quite a lot. Do you have a lot of tips and tricks for the partner to support pregnancy or is there anything that you recommend on that front? Oh, great question. Like I'd say encourage them if you have a doula to attend the appointments. Mm -hmm. Um, I even have husbands come in to some of my, like the prenatal appointments because there are strategies, comfort measure strategies that they can participate in um, to give you some comfort during labor. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I just say like, if they're engaged, um, just have them come along. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think it, it just depends on how, I think how the, the woman invites the, them as well. Like mm-hmm. that's all very unique to each, 
each individual's like circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I always think it's so interesting. And, and this concept was revolutionary to me, you know, years ago or a few years ago where we talked about how um, back in the day there would be such a community of women around and such a community of like men weren't even offered to be in the room. And it was very much grandmothers and mothers and um, the likelihood of you have already seen a birth by the time you give birth was extremely likely, you know, mm. and I had a girlfriend who called me the day she went into labor and it was happening. She's like, I'm not ready. And I'm like, it's a little late at this point, but it, it's happening and like try to give some sort of reassurance at this point. But there's so much fear around it. And I think it's obviously that fear of the unknown, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It like reflecting back to my own personal experience um, as a type A personality, I think it's the fear of the uncon- the unknown. Yeah, mm-hmm. the uncontrollable nature of it. Especially first time around, you don't know what it's going to feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know when it's going to start. <laughs> Fair, yeah. You know, like I think that like the infamous due date is, is a first like point to wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, I, I, I think you just, I don't know. You think about how society has changed away from kind of that, that village mm-hmm. kind of experience. And back in my mother's generation or my grandmother's generation, there was probably a lot of conversations around it mm-hmm. that would help mitigate some of that fear maybe. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how I know how to answer that question, but yeah. certainly addressing it with my clients is a big variable Mm -hmm. because we can hold a lot of things in our, like our pelvis is the root of our stability, Mm -hmm. right? So if we fear something, we can hold it there. Um, So it is a big aspect of what I work through with my clients and in that preparation phase. Yeah, that's a huge point too, right? And, um, you know, the sympathetic overdrive, the fight or flight patients Mm -hmm. that I have sitting in, in my office often describe incontinence, often describe urgency, often describe all of those symptoms. You're like, hey, have you ever seen a pelvic floor? Here's a card. Right. <laughs> Check this out, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's anyways, it's a very rewarding area of practice. Mm-hmm. Like I know we've, I feel like we've diverged mm-hmm. significantly, but this is great. I love the conversation and where it's taken us. Yeah. Um, what about, so part of this too, is that uh, postpartum piece. So mm. I think I foresee, I, I saw one Instagram post and, and um, the woman gave birth and literally promised herself, I think six to 10 days, just like laying in bed, mm. just really recovering and yeah. really focusing on like people bringing her food. And it looked like very luxurious. And, yeah. and I don't even know if I could spend six days in bed or what that would look like. But what are some key tips postpartum um, that we have to be aware of and that people are pushing or not pushing enough? Yeah. In that early, I would say that first week to 10 days, can almost feel like this like haze. And so I would say that 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 individual with that post had a great plan. Mm -hmm. In that very, very early postpartum recovery, rest is your kind of best friend. Um, I generally talk, I help people understand or work with them. um, If I see them prenatally, understanding what this, that deep canister is right? Your diaphragm, pelvic floor, deep belly muscles, um, because it, it works, it works like a piston. So we can use our breath to help connect with our pelvic floor, relax with our pelvic floor, um, 
Our pelvic floor should work like as a team with our deep belly muscles. They should come on together. And I just help them understand that kind of rhythm because as your belly continues to grow, that it, the baby's growing right in the middle of that system mm -hmm. as it's changing. The more in tune women are with that prenatally, then it, it makes them more comfortable to reconnect with the pelvic floor postpartum. They remember what it felt like in the beginning, in those early days, maybe we're not actually feeling much happening there after the pelvic floor has undergone um, some trauma with mm -hmm. delivery. But we, our body already knows that motor pattern of what we're trying to get it to feel like again. Uh, and people feel more confident kind of going back to that gentle connection. Mm -hmm. So really, people can start that as early as they're ready that kind of deep canister breathing, gentle connection. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that would be what I would always advocate to kind of start with. And then listening to your body mm -hmm. and, and, you know, little bits each day, getting up, moving around with what feels comfortable. And if you have any symptoms, so there are some symptoms that are common postpartum in those first six to eight weeks, you may experience some leaking of urine you may experience some leaking of stool depending on like if you tore what happened. Um, you may experience some heaviness at the pelvic floor. So it's, it's kind of whatever your, your symptoms are, kind of identifying what that threshold is and respecting that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the biggest one is that at the six-week mark... <laughs> You're back. <laughs> when you see your primary health care provider, that green light doesn't mean like, let's go back to the gym and mm -hmm. perform a, a workout that we would have been doing prior to pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where the work can happen and is very important to set, set realistic expectations, especially for the athlete brain mm -hmm. of what it, that timeline is going to look like for getting back to impact, for getting back to your previous, you know, one RM, that shouldn't be happening for like the nine to 12 month mark. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important to emphasize. Hey, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, this is, this is the area that is my huge passion project mm -hmm. um, because it's a very underserved area. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine, we've been talking about this deep canister now in pregnancy, baby grows right in the middle of that. So your abdominal wall gets stretched so we, we kind of have stretching of that deep belly muscle as our, the uterus grows, as our baby grows and there's more weight through the pelvic floor. Pelvic floor, often people think I, I'm weak. I need to do Kegels when really the pelvic floor is, is in high tone mm -hmm. because it's like, what the heck is happening to me? <laughs> what is this? So it's just like trying to hold things together. Yeah. Our breath mechanics change because mm -hmm. our diaphragm can elevate up to four centimeters by the end of the third trimester, depending on like the length of our torso. Wow. And all in the matter of a microsecond, when you really think about it, 10 months versus however long your labor and delivery is, mm -hmm. it's like popping a balloon. So women feel super lost mm -hmm. in that, that middle of the body. It's like foreign. And what I find is a very common tendency is when women try and get back too quickly, um, breath holding is a very common strategy that people adopt because our body's number one priority is stability. Mm -hmm. And if I can't create that through my own activation patterns, if I hold my breath, it's at least a way to create tension. 
Makes sense. And some spinal stiffness. Yep. You're just going to find any compensatory pattern you can, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, I find that it just prolongs people's symptoms. Mm -hmm. The the returning to fitness is all about pressure management. Mm -hmm. Say that again. It prolongs people's symptoms, guys. (laughs) It prolongs things rather than feeling like we want that body back or Mm -hmm. getting back to that um, previous level of fitness. We're just kind of prolonging things. Mm -hmm. So what I find if we can, it's all about pressure management. So we don't want breath holding. If we're breath holding and increasing pressure, we're placing more strain on the um, abdominal pelvic fascia, which is just trying to recover. Mm -hmm. Um, If we are changing pressure on our pelvic organs, which can, if we have hemorrhoids, can um, have hemorrhoids persist. They can, if we have prolapse, it's contributing to prolapse. You know, it, it just kind of feeds itself. So my little passion project is helping women navigate that. Like, how can this look postpartum where we're giving them their fix? Because mm-hmm. that's very important mm-hmm. for management from a mental health perspective. But how can we do that in a safe way? Mm-hmm. Would that look very different for each individual? I would say the general principles of like progression would be similar, mm-hmm. but where you would interject or start someone would look very different depending on their their previous fitness how labor and delivery went did they have a cesarean versus a vaginal birth did they have tearing um so that would kind of navigate the where they start in that process Mm -hmm. but the progression return the the system that i utilize is similar Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense for sure. You kind of have to reconnect with that deep system, mm-hmm. have good activation, demonstrate good control. Mm-hmm. And then if we think about any exercise, if we are doing an isometric version of an exercise where we're just learning to hold our body in space, whatever orientation or position that is, will be easier than moving through range, mm-hmm. will be easier than moving quickly will be easier than moving dynamically or, or high impact. Mm-hmm. So you can like take that little cookie cutter and, and interject whatever you want in that, depending on what the client's goals are. Yeah, for sure. So this is like fascinating and I have probably 8 billion questions for you and I'm sure I'm just going to Instagram you them all. And But what I would really like to, if you're up for it, is to have you on again and talk really cool. like the C-section piece of things mm, and yeah. um, your personal experience I and all it. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I had one question. Mm-hmm. So you kind of started down this path of all of um, pelvic floor physio based on your own experience. Mm-hmm. What was the like drive or what, what happened or what was the... Oh, like why pelvic health? Yeah. Okay, so uh, <laughs> everyone's going to know my story now and I'm okay with that. Okay. Um, so this actually helps build awareness, mm-hmm. I think, um, particularly for maybe a good a follow, your following. Um, when I was a teen, I had incontinence. Mm-hmm. I struggled with constipation, which wasn't bowel movements or normalcy of what it even should be. Mm-hmm. It was not a conversation in my household, unfortunately. And I was constipated, which then fed to hypertonicity of my pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. And then I had issues with stress incontinence during figure skating. So if I like fell on a jump hard, I would leak or what we would call giggle incontinence. So if we laughed too hard, um, I'd maybe have a little accident. So through physio school, when we had our little tiny taste of this is pelvic floor physio in a day, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I've got to like learn more about mm-hmm. this. Um, and then post 
postpartum was my, my next like real push. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though I was in it, I, I felt, uh, I felt very like, I had to navigate it myself by figuring out my own things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to spell myths for moms that just because things don't feel right, um, or we've had a C-section, for example, that we can't get back to lifting heavy things. Mm-hmm. Um, I am stronger now than I was ever pre-pregnancies. That's awesome. And so it's just supporting people if they have those questions and helping them understand that there's a very safe way to get back to fitness. Mm-hmm. It's just that unfortunately, um, the way that media is or the marketing out there it's like mommy boot camp like get your burn in an hour (laughs) and unfortunately these options are all high impact activities Mm -hmm. that are causing mums to leak or have back pain or pelvic pain and and of course they're feeling discouraged like Mm -hmm. I guess this means that my body can't tolerate this thing anymore Mm -hmm. so devastating it kind of takes that drive away to to train as well hey yeah Yeah. so I think for particularly around c-sections um I think there's a there's a belief that it like it's the easy way out or it saves your pelvic floor, mm-hmm. um, which is not true. So if if our pelvic floor does not undergo that stretch that it's essentially been like waiting for, mm-hmm. <laughs> women with C sections often really struggle with hypertonicity of mm-hmm. their pelvic floor, <laughs> and symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction can be similar. So an overactive pelvic floor can still have leaking mm-hmm. um, for different reasons. You can, women can have painful sex, which is again, another very taboo conversation that women are maybe afraid to ask about or speak of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So again, just helping spread awareness that there's support out there. And, and I think also helping people understand that it's not just about an internal exam. Like, although that, that, that is the gold standard for assessing pelvic floor muscle function, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't need to happen mm-hmm. if women aren't comfortable with that. Sure. There's still so many other things you can do. Hey. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really important to, for any practitioners listening to you is to get, to talk to a pelvic floor physio and get like a good list of questions that you feel comfortable asking in office to know when to refer as well. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it is a very like under, underlooked area, Mm -hmm. however, um, has such a profound impact on people. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very simple questions. Um, it's just a a matter of building comfort to, to ask those things. Yeah, no, I love it. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge and I can't (laughs) wait to have you back. It's it's true. Right. And like, there's so many, I mean, like, even with my medical background, I read this, I study it, but like the application of it and the fear avoidance going into the gym of things that I'm so comfortable with without mm-hmm. this little human inside of me. But as soon as you're looking out for another life, you're like, oh, is this okay? Uh, and second guessing a lot of your your uh, decision making. So I appreciate your time so much. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It was uh, my pleasure. And congratulations to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so Where can exciting. people reach out to you? Where can they find you? What if they have more questions? Oh, yeah. So uh, like I said at the start, I'm at Young Kemp mm-hmm. Physiotherapy. So you can always uh, look us up. And uh, I'm on Instagram at Brick Klingman. My, um, my, how, how frequently I post stuff in there is, is very much dependent on what else is going on in my life. Mm-hmm. So if someone wants to see me, like I always have 
endless time in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, another thing that we're doing at a, um, Young Kemp right now actually is I'm I'm starting. I'm doing two cohorts of what we call Ab Rehab. So it's essentially for that athletic demographic, um, not at early postpartum, but for individuals that are realizing it through fitness that, oh man, like I, I always have back pain, pelvic pain. I have like, my lifts are limited by my trunk control, not my leg strength. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing an eight week class of that. So it's like a one, one a week kind of thing. Amazing. Can people just reach out to you to sign up for that? Yeah, that would be at Young Kemp too. So if you call the clinic, um, that's where registration would occur. Wicked. I yeah. love it. Well, thanks again. I'm for sure going to have you back if you will give me more of your time of someday. Yeah, awesome. it was fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Okay. So that wraps another episode of the off season. Thank you guys so much for listening. We always appreciate that. If you'd like to follow along with us, it's at theoffseason.podcast. We always appreciate a rate and good review and share. The whole point of sharing this information and, and doing these episodes is to educate as much as possible. So if you think somebody else would really learn something here, we would really appreciate that share. 